Hey folks, here we are again. This is Jaime Alejandro, and I'd like to welcome you to the Arts Calling Podcast, where I interview independent creatives, hardworking folks in the literary, visual, and performing arts. I have a wonderful conversation lined up today, but first, let me just air a couple of things. Uh, <laughs> I just want to remind you, if you want to share your thoughts on the latest episodes, what you like or didn't like, any thoughts or suggestions, let me know over at artscallingpodcast at gmail.com. That is the new email for the podcast. And if you could do me a big favor, be sure to stop by coalitionfordigitalnarratives.org. That is my creative home on the internet where I'm going to be starting to share a bit more on the creative process, my own works, and of course, the Coalition Works Literary Journal, which has been going since last year. We are about to celebrate our one-year anniversary in the fall, so I'm very excited to have you uh, check that out. So that would be great. And before I talk about my guest, my awesome, awesome guest, let me do a quick shout out. And this week, I'd like to tell you about My Bad Poetry Podcast. This is a show that I've been listening to for the last couple of years. It's been on my regular rotation. Thanks to the Twitter writing community, uh, Aaron and Dave, who produce the show, are friends of the show. And let me share a little bit about how they do their thing. Aaron and Dave dive into an old private journal to read poems written in high school. Along the way, the two have found themselves joined by some incredibly amazing people, all willing to share some of their own bad poetry. Experience a mix of self-reflection, humor, self-deprecation, great conversations, and just maybe a half-decent poem. So there you have it, folks. Check out My Bad Poetry Podcast. Aaron and Dave, you're doing amazing work. I look forward to the episodes every time they come out, and uh, I hope that you, dear listener, go and check them out as soon as possible. Now let's talk about our main event, our returning guest, Jim Clayton. Downbeat Magazine called Jim Clayton's music warm, happy, and soulful. He calls it a blend of bebop and New Orleans, the city he considers a second home. His repertoire is a mix of jazz standards, reimagined pop classics, and his own memorable writing. Jim's last two albums, Lenny Jumps In and Songs My Daughter Knows, landed on the jazz radio charts in both Canada and the USA. He won three national awards with the recording act, the Clayton Scott Group, and his music has been heard internationally on radio, in film, and on television, including Dateline NBC, Keeping Up with the Kardashians, and MTV. Jim spent a decade as a music director with acclaimed theater company, The Second City, entertaining audiences around the globe, from expats in Asia to our troops in Bosnia. He began streaming nightly performances at the start of the pandemic. After over 750 online shows, Jim garnered 30,000 new online followers. And personally, I just want to add... Jim has a natural ability to connect with an audience. He's always insightful, a delightful storyteller, and he's been called Canada's very own Harry Connick Jr. He is down-to-earth, soulful, and joyous as his jazz performances. And these, I believe, are the trappings of an outstanding entertainer. And I'm very, very fortunate that I get to talk to him for a second time. We had a lovely conversation, and I hope you enjoy. His album, Look Out is available October 3rd, so go to jimclaytonjazz.com to get that information, and let's give him a call. Hello, how about round two? 
Hey, can you hear me okay now? Yes, I can. There we go. Hey, Jim. Good morning. How are you? Oh, I'm I'm doing well. Thank you so much for coming back on and doing this. I'm really, really no, excited. I'm flattered. I'm flattered that you had me back. Oh, my goodness. How couldn't I? We had such a great time uh, talking about music and especially with the accompaniment. I think that was probably the most exciting, uh, you know, moment of Arts Calling. So uh, it, it was really a pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> I'll make sure to. Uh, oh, I tell you what, I think I played you off last time. You're going to work uh, our way in? So I'll. Yeah, you know, you get the uh, drum roll of okay. some sort. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Arts Calling. I thought about playing the uh, Carson theme song, but you're younger than I am. So I imagine <laughs> you're uh, probably, and I don't know the Jay Leno one, so. But I do understand the reference, so that is very, very exciting to me. And you made my morning, so thank you uh, for doing that. But man, we have a lot to catch up on. I think you've been you've been quite busy these last couple of uh, of months. I, I think it's almost been a year since we last spoke. So uh, I think we talked in January. Oh yeah, um, yeah. So maybe maybe eight or yeah, nine yeah. months there. How's it been? Oh, I wasn't fact. I wasn't fact checking. I was just reminiscing. <laughs> when I start doing video, you know, I could have the, you know, the the clicker come up at the bottom, you know, to to uh, to give me oh, the, the corrections. Oh, like the, the the little or the little gauge the fact, fact meter. factometer. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that was fun. I thoroughly I got some nice feedback from. Uh, I was sharing that on my socials, as the kids call them, and uh, right. it was, uh, I got I got some nice feedback. So. That was, I appreciate you. I appreciate you doing that. Oh, wonderful. Um, yeah. Yeah. Actually, when I reached out to you, I was uh, thinking about how much has changed just since January. Um, but uh, it sort of started with um, me getting out of my head to attend Jazz Ahead in Bremen, Germany, oh. a conference last April. And, uh, that stemmed from pre COVID, um, and possibly where I first got COVID, oh. uh, was a, a conference in New York city called jazz Congress, which I don't think exists anymore. I think it got folded into some other organization, mm. like a networking event with panels and, uh, um, you know, you go room to room and hear somebody talking about this, somebody talking about that. And, uh, I just had a fabulous time. The, it was the pr two previous Januaries. And, uh, I may have mentioned this last time I was on, but, you know, wandering, I, the first time I went to a few panels and, uh, but the best part of the experience was just hanging out in the common area, but you know, they were the coffee is and just saying, you know, hi to folks and discovering that, uh, as much as I think of myself as a self-conscious person, and I, I probably am on some level and maybe I'm fighting nature to do it, but I so enjoyed just introducing myself to people and then chatting with them but more importantly you know making a note of what their what's their industry what 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 are they into and then going oh i just met this person that you have this in common with and i loved i found that i loved connecting people the mm. my favorite part of it was not just not meeting i liked meeting the people but uh yeah, introducing them to each other and i went back uh the following year having made some contacts one of whom got me my first uh, um, gig as a piano player and vocalist in the States as an entertainer and not just an accompanist or music director. 
And uh, I went back the following year. I took my family. Uh, they was a, they went to see Beetlejuice on Broadway while I uh, <laughs> was at this thing, introducing everybody I could possibly meet. And uh, because of you know the folks I met and getting that contact, you know, in the, to be able to perform in the states, and there's paperwork involved, so you need somebody to commit to booking you as a Canadian to bring you in. I thought, well, I went to a conference in the U.S. and I got a gig in the U.S. What if I went to Europe? And so, uh, yeah, my wife thought that was a, a good, smart, you know, reasonably good logic and a, a smart idea. <laughs> and while I was in touch with them, telling them what I'd been up to, which was the live stream, Jim's Piano Bar and the press it got and whatnot, um, I wound up being invited to be on a panel at the event. So now I'm not just an attendee, but I'm actually being um, passed off as some sort of expert about something, which is dubious, but it, <laughs> it, it was fun. And I also, uh, as a result of that, wound up presenting a an abbreviated version of a keynote presentation I've been working on since you and I first chatted. Um, life lessons from an accidental piano bar and the stories of uh, some of the, uh, the, the interesting characters I met there, things I've met there, life lessons I, I learned from doing it, from engaging with having suddenly 30,000 people following you online. There's going to be all sorts of folks, all sorts of things to deal with. Um, in a couple of occasions, people to block because they were threatening the life of somebody else that watches your show online. Right. It, it was it was interesting, um, but I realized I had something to share from that, and all of the stories are also related to somebody or something on that show that had uh, who um who who had a request or there was a song behind it. So the idea of the keynote is that each of the stories ends with connecting it to here's the song, you know, here, the, you know, this is relevant to this song and surprise behind me on stage, I've got my bass player and my drummer and they, and I sit down at the piano and each of them, each segment, five to eight minutes ends with me performing a song. So it's, uh, and I talked to the keynote friends I'd made from doing corporate events over the years and they were like, this is not. This is uh, this could be new. This is uh, distinct. This is uh, this is different. So there, uh, this this might work. So I've been working on that, and di did part of it at in Bremen, Germany. So I get to say I premiered it in Germany, <laughs> which is kind of cool, being from Toronto. Yeah, so. yeah, and that's incredible to hear because to me, as you mentioned this, it sounds almost like a one man show, almost like life lessons. It, you know, you are sharing it in such a way that that it is a presentation. I imagine, but it seems to have those kinds of elements or the trappings, certain trappings of, of a one-man performance. It's. Uh, are you familiar with uh, Mike Birbiglia? Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. His. It, he started off stand-up, and it sort of turned into. It's really. It's. It's. They're plays. They're one-man. They're one-man shows. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, there's probably hints of that. Um, my slight level of discomfort with performing solo in that capacity, not like talking and not just being at the piano is sort of offset by the fact that I actually have a rhythm section on stage, um, budget permitting, uh, that didn't happen for, uh, in Germany. I, I just, uh, I shared the story of the piano bar and then a couple of the segments from the, uh, from the, uh, from the keynote. And then uh, that went over pretty well. And then I uh, headed upstairs at the, the German conference, headed upstairs and joined two tech gurus for a panel 
Uh, and one was a, a fellow who deals in NFTs and uh, I don't think he deals with crypto, but that's the same level of it's over my head to the same degree. Uh, but I, uh, so I had to cram a bit and on the plane on the way over, I was reading up on how like stone temple pilots created an NFT that had, uh, included, uh, you know, front row seats and some original artwork and some unique merch. And, uh, so, you know, I had something to some point of, uh, um, so, uh, of something rougher, a yeah, point of reference for what they were talking about. And uh, this fellow had uh, created these for uh, and traveled with Dolly Parton. Like these are like, you know, some high level professionals. Yeah. And the other fellow is a great electronic musician named Jay, who I've stayed in touch with uh, thanks to LinkedIn. And uh, Jay is uh, um, an AI guru mm. and uh, was talking about things I had no idea were going on, such as, you know, if you're on Spotify, you're not just competing with, uh, uh, other musicians you're competing with the fact that spotify has got ai generating music to certain specifications uh, which means that there's more competition but also if somebody chooses easy listening jazz over your stuff easy listening jazz this this playlist may have been created by ai owned by spotify and they don't have to pay anybody because there is nobody and so there, there's nobody to pay so they hang on to that aspect of that that part of the money and uh yeah it was, yeah. It was just some of it was blowing my mind and i want to come back to this yeah um if, if i may because this is i know it's kind of a heavy topic to get into right right now but i'd like to ask right. you what your what your thoughts on it if there's any kind of fears or concerns about it because it is so pervasive now and we're seeing it in screenwriting where they're saying that studios are generating drafts original first drafts of content from ai and then the idea is to hire screenwriters to do the touch-ups or to do the revisions but the intellectual property is to remain with the studios and that's it's sort of pervasive now and I'm, I'm curious in terms of music you as a live performer as a musician who is sharing something that is as organic and as as human as music What's your immediate response to that? How does that land with you? Uh, hmm. I think a lot of musicians, especially my age or older, made the shift already in that the... No, no, oh, I'm trying to think of how to phrase this. Making the stuff to sell, uh, that ship sailed mm -hmm. with Napster, LimeWire, um, if iTunes had started a little sooner than younger folks might be accustomed to paying a dollar for a song mm -hmm. uh, or whatever they charge now, but they were already used to downloading it for free. There's, I have, I always had legal issues, concerns with it. Like, you know, just because they can't enforce you not that the sign that at the library that says, please don't photocopy the books. It's against copyright law. It might be tough to enforce, but you still give it the old college try. And that never really seemed to happen with downloading. So, but say la vie. Um, but we went from doing low paying gigs to sell CDs for 20 bucks off the stage to doing the gigs, trying to make more money on the gig and giving away the music for free effectively to get people to come out. Um, I'm not sure that answers the question very well, but we we're, we're already used to shifting gears 
to uh, to making the money somewhere else. And I think that somewhere else we wound up prioritizing the live performing over the uh, the recording. And I think the recording stuff is more and the songwriting is more vulnerable to AI. But AI, until they come up with a legit hologram and not just projecting a picture onto a mylar screen, which is what <laughs> they seem to call holograms yeah, on tour, yeah. um, they. Uh, that I think I think the uh, live performing is is safe from that, and live performing is honestly where it's at income wise. I mean that's that's I think proven just by the fact that somebody like a, a Boz Skaggs or a uh, I don't know why he's the one that always comes to mind, <laughs> but the fellow from the seventies uh, greatest hit, like the guys that were retired and probably thought they were going to stay retired because of their greatest hits package still selling all these years later. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden the two thousands comes and you people get it for free off the internet and your, it's like your pension went away. And now you see guys that, Oh, I thought they were retired, but they're playing this casino tour. I think that is because of the, the, the royalties just bottoming out. So we've musicians have had to find ways to, to work around things. I think movies and television stayed, uh, I think that happened ahead of movies and televisions, uh, movie and television being hit by downloading simply because of internet bandwidth. You could download a song. It's three megs. You want to download a movie, even with current compression. I think an hour TV show is probably minimum like around half a gig. Uh, if it's decent quality movies, twice that probably, uh, that's really de dealing with downloading though with ai um i did the the one that really uh got, i hadn't thought about the script writing and then having it pun like is it is going to churn out maybe a decent premise if you get enough information into it but somebody's going to need to clean it up and make the dialogue so it doesn't sound like you know <laughs> yeah. like uh you know the the first luke the, the the episodes one two and three from star wars <laughs> um it's somebody's going to have to do it the way you've always had people come in and punch it up you know the guys that aren't named on it but carrie fisher was a famous uh script doctor kevin smith does it uh still i think mm -hmm. um mammoth uh, someone's going to have to do that, but yeah, you're right. The, if, if the AI studio owned AI came up with the original premise, that's going to save them a bundle because the script doctors probably only cost uh, 1% of what the I'm guessing, but a small percentage of what the actual script creator cost. And if there's no creator, no, but there's, there's nobody to pay. Uh, the one that got me was the idea that extras could be paid for one movie or maybe one day oh, yeah, yeah. get scanned physically scanned and then used not just for other days on that shoot, but in perpetuity by the studio. That's horrific. And <laughs> I can't wrap my head around who thought that that was going to withstand scrutiny. Yeah. Um, and I mean, it's one of those efforts where they go, let's, let's see how far we can push it and then we'll, we'll tread back. But at the same time, I love this idea in terms of your musician perspective that you can't let it paralyze you. You can't let it stop you from going out there and doing the work of a, a musician where I think maybe in popular times, and I would say since the advent of, of recorded technology, we've conflated a musician's worth with their recordings. And it, it almost seems like you're taking it back to, we're here to perform. We're here to give people uh, an emotional experience in person. 
And that seems to be sort of like the, the most human thing that you could do right now. And it's really inspiring because like as performers or, or whatever it is that you're sharing, the technology still can't replicate that. And even a recording is just a, an artifact to, to slightly represent what you actually have to share, which is the performance. You know, that's the, the big gift. And I think that we maybe catastrophize without realizing that performance is never going to go away. And sharing that emotional experience is never going to go away. Uh, but I, I well, think you're clued on that. Yeah. Yeah. Two things can be true. Uh, it is a catastrophe. <laughs> um, but, you know, like you, it, it is at the same time. It, yeah, it, it is what it is. It is a catastrophe. But, you know, what, you know, what, do you, what are you going to do? Um, technology changes. I mean, I'm a musician and I can't sell CDs for 20 bucks on the stage anymore. Mind you, I am in jazz and the demographic skews a bit older and those people still have CD players, <laughs> a lot of them. So, um, but the youngsters, not so much, mm -hmm. but at the same time, we're not, the, the performing is a very, very different thing. I, I know this because I'm very happy performing and I can be a nervous wreck in the recording studio. Mm. It's, uh, part of performing part of the weirdness of it is that it's uh it's uh, it's a it's a momentary thing it's you you play the tune and then it's gone into the ether if you record it it's there forever mm -hmm. which sounds more attractive at a glance except that what if you make a mistake <laughs> the mistakes there forever and that's why the recording you know recording stuff uh recording makes me uh makes me far more nervous than performing yeah uh i still uh and i've been singing not nearly as long as i've been playing um and i'm perfectly happy to listen back to my playing um but it's you know it's the sound of a piano and it's a little less personal than hearing your own voice and i heard with the new album like just the other day i heard uh, myself singing singing on the radio for the first time on oh a, wow on a, yeah on a toronto show that aired one of they asked permission to air one of the tr the tunes before its release date and i i said yeah sure absolutely and i didn't expect to be as uncomfortable as I was. Mm. It was very, very strange. It was very, felt very exposed. Yeah. Um, and before you keep going, I just want to give you a shout yeah. out on that because the new album called Lookout is is phenomenal. I had a chance to listen oh, to you. it a couple of times. I had such a blast with it. And it, it is sort of a, a a trademark joy that you bring to to the recording. And I have so many questions about improvising and, and that sort of discomfort, you know, and how the preparation went into it but if we could talk about your voice because this is the first album that you did that has that features your vocals and it yeah. was it was great to have there it, it was great to have it be a part of it but obviously that hesitation that you that you may have experienced is is not one that i that i think is an issue because you sounded wonderful in it but tell me about oh i appreciate that yeah yeah tell me about preparing for sitting down in the studio and sharing those vocals because that seems to be like the big barrier that you had to overcome in this record yeah well to be honest uh i we may have touched on this last time but uh i i, I was a kid with a speech impediment i was in speech therapy for 10 years um didn't say the letter s properly consistently until like grade seven and so when I wound up working briefly in radio in before I moved to Toronto to pursue music with my radio boss's encouragement, which either meant he really liked my music or he really disliked my work in radio. Um, <laughs> he, uh, I, I, uh, I thought that was the brass ring. I thought, wow, I went from n not being able to talk to being paid to talk. 
so, you know, let's call it a day. Like, I, I, let's quit while we're ahead. So the idea of singing just seemed like I was just pushing my luck. And I did do once. I did do one gig when I was 18 at a local tavern in Sarnia, and uh, the guy hired me without hearing me. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was uh, it was rough. It was not uh, it was not well attended. Uh, it was my retention of people who came in, sat down, listened, and then stayed. Uh, the ratio was heavily skewed towards leaving before oh, your no. drinks even came. Yeah, it was oh, no. not a good idea. I don't know where I got the audacity to think I could just learn to sing in like the three weeks I had between getting hired and you know and doing the gig. So uh, and even my own even my own mom, honestly, I went home, practiced a couple a tune a couple of times to you know practice and back then the idea of practicing was like doing a tune maybe twice and then hey mom come listen to this and it was barry manilow's i made it through the rain from the early 80s maybe 1980 and uh a shout out to my uh, barry manilow uh fan <laughs> friends out there uh and the uh and even my own mom listened to about half of it and said oh maybe you should focus on the piano so, and this is a woman who went on to become a grief counselor, a chaplain, consoling people who oh, were wow. terminally ill in the hospital. And she couldn't even bring it to say to her own son, <laughs> hey, maybe with a little work. So, Still yeah, I went about 30, I went, I went about 30 years without, uh, without singing again. And then I, I got the, I got the bug when I was about to turn 50. I just turned 56. Um, so. Uh, it was a very, very gradual process. And uh, I went into it telling my uh, wife, uh, you know, don't blow any smoke up my behind about this. Like, I need to know if you say this is good enough now for me to do at one of my gigs at a club, that it really is, that I'm not going to walk out and people are going to go, oh, what, what, what's he doing? Why is he, yeah. who gave him a mic? Um, he, uh, and she said, no, I'll do that. And holy cow, she did. <laughs> I would, uh, I started off just performing like I was anyhow at seniors homes with friends. And, uh, I got up the nerve to do every other song for one 45 minute set. And I remember it very well because it's the place in the neighborhood and my daughter and I, Lenny would go to uh, visit people when she was young and, you know, cause they love babies. Mm. And, uh, I looked at my bass player friend, Peter afterwards. And I said, well, uh, you know, at, at the seniors home, I said, uh, well, nobody walked out. And he looked at me and he said, well, to be fair, most of them couldn't. Uh, <laughs> so bless my friends for uh, keeping me honest. He's, he, he's just very funny. And uh, I would tape these uh, seniors home performances because they're lovely, appreciative audiences and it's a little bit captive, I guess. So I would uh, you know, do a few tunes in the middle of a set and I would find like four bars to play for my wife. Uh, that didn't make me completely like embarrassed. I'd be like, is this okay? Like, how's this? And she'd listen and she, you know, sort of like, mm, you know, frown at this note or that note. And mm-hmm. she'd be like, well, if you do work on this and do, you know, and, and she sings beautifully. And uh, so, uh, you know, she knows. And the biggest compliment I think I ever got, the happiest I've ever been with feedback was when I brought something home from one of those and I played her maybe eight bars of a Duke Ellington tune or something I was singing. And she sat there and listened to it and then looked up, paused, and then she said, nothing about that made me cringe. <laughs> and that was like getting a Grammy award. Yeah. So it, for me, you know, it's all from where you start. Everything's relative. And I was just delighted. And the more I loosened up and the more I relaxed about it, uh, the better it got. And I quickly found out that 
not quickly, a couple of years, but I found out eventually that uh, it was as much about, uh, it was probably 40% technique and 60% just relaxing. Because mm-hmm. at one point she said, it's not that it's, it's not that it's, it sounds bad. It's that you sound nervous. And if you're nervous, the audience is going to be nervous. Right. Right. And then once I got that through my head, it took some time. Um, it's, uh, but, uh, and then doing the live streaming when people would say, Hey, can you play this? Can you do this tune? Uh, and I would play it and they, and in the comments in the chat, they'd be like, Oh, I, I was hoping you would sing it. And hearing somebody go that had heard me sing say, Oh, I was hoping you would sing some more made me go, really? All right. <laughs> so, you know, I would do it. It was very, it, it took a while. Uh, yeah. It took it took a while, and then coming out of COVID, getting a weekly gig at a club in Toronto, and showing up, not certain if he they wanted me to just play or cause, you know it was during the dinner shift, it was the early shift, but it was every week. Um, it wasn't until I got there and the manager said, "Oh, let me go get your mic," that I was like, "Oh, okay, they do want me to sing," mm-hmm. and then doing that every week and having people who actually knew something about you know jazz and other musicians, you know, sometimes saying some nice things. Uh, yeah, it, it was about eight months of that weekly gig. And after about the halfway point, it, I think it, that's when it really started to be fun yeah. and not just, Oh, here's a useful tool in my belt as a piano player. Now I can also sing. I was looking forward to it. Yeah. And now it's just, now it's just fun. Oh, it and, really and you can tell, and that's one of the things I wanted to commend you on for the album. You you feel relaxed. I think that that is something that definitely comes through on Lookout. But if we could talk about coming together to bring this album to life, you, you brought on some collaborators on this uh, in the cover. Uh, you say it features Herlin Riley and Amina Scott. Yeah. Could you share a bit about your collaborators on this and, and how you brought the team together what was that collaborative process like in the in the studio well you may find this entertaining to know then that uh i didn't meet them in person until that morning at the studio <laughs> this which is true but that's not that uh, seems like you, a, a jazz, very jazz thing doesn't it like jazz you, musicians are going yeah so what that's normal like but <laughs> but, uh, but let me let me take it back to the what the way it came together was and i'll take it back to that conference in germany uh, I made a bunch of contacts. I had folks that I was meeting saying, hey, if you can get here to Sweden if you or Finland, uh, I don't know, it doesn't matter, but Finland specifically, I met a, a fellow from Music Finland who uh, we bonded over the fact that we both loved Southern Fried Rock, like 38 Special from the 80s. And, and he's from Finland and he's into this stuff. And he also was into the Toronto band, The Pursuit of Happiness, which just shocked me because I didn't realize they were known overseas. And also the bass player from that band is now for years has been the music director at Toronto's jazz station. So he was delighted by that. <laughs> um, but in other places, you know, some folks that have connections in Brazil, they're like, Hey, if you can get here, you know, we'll help you get some gigs. And I was overwhelmed when I start looking, looking into how to make that happen. And I talked to uh, a friend, um, Celine, uh, and, uh, Celine's a family friend and is also a artist representative. And she had had somebody leave the roster and said, well, I could, you know, actually, actually I, I could take you on uh, if you're interested. And, but there's one condition. And the condition was that I make an album, ASAP, that has vocals on it because I have six previous albums and 
they're all instrumental because the the most recent one was 2016 and i didn't take up singing until 2017 so mm -hmm. you know there you go and it uh, uh also right previous to going to the conference i realized oh if i'm going to go to this conference i need for networking purposes you you want to have current promotional material so i gone in the studio with a couple of friends and done like a five song demo uh an, another friend who is a fabulous videographer works on the star trek television series uh, came over and shot video of me performing the tunes uh so i had that in my for a demo but i didn't have an album that she could uh you know push to clubs and say here's a video but he's got a new album coming out book him mm. and so new album well what 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 do i do and i had had conversations with a friend named chris bookshire who is a uh, world-class trombonist he was from winnipeg in canada moved to toronto was where i met him dual citizens we ended up in new orleans the you know the home of jazz and among other things had set up a recording studio uh and you know, quite a nice one in the front half of his home and he's like he had mentioned you should record down here and so i'm like well let's do this then and but you know who with because i could use if they're available the same musicians as the 2013 instrumental album i did songs my daughter knows which is recorded down there mm -hmm. uh and he's like well let me look into it and he winds up saying how about these folks and uh, i knew of amina because chris had spoken very highly of her playing with her in the new orleans jazz orchestra and herlin riley uh that's a whole nother thing because her, I got into jazz partly, uh, certainly standards from because of the movie When Harry Met Sally from mm, 1980. Yeah. I want to say 1987, and there was a uh, uh, I want to say young guy. He's we're the same age actually. Harry Connick Jr. played on the did a lot of the new music for When Harry Met Sally, and so I loved it and went out and got Harry's uh, previous two albums, and Herlin's on the first one. This guy, I'm in the studio with a guy who plays on one of the albums that made me love jazz. <laughs> and so I was wondering if I was going to freak out a little bit looking across the room and there, here he is in the drum room and, and, but he's, he's just so nice. It's just so chill. Uh, also we were both wearing like flat caps. So we bonded over that. <laughs> uh, and then Amina was just absolutely lovely and they're creatively contributing like suggesting different feels different tempos you know for what about this groove what if we did mm -hmm. this on this tune um and it went super smoothly because i had charts i had sheet music with all the details for uh yeah they're not you, you it's not like i'm not doing the most common tunes as you've seen on the album uh, a lot of them aren't from the jazz lexicon they're not jazz standards so it wasn't like hey let's do um this gershwin tune that we all know but let's do it at this tempo okay and we'll do mm -hmm. this ending and then you just talk through it maybe play the ending once and then knock it out and you know, like do the tune uh it wasn't that sort of thing it it, it was sheet music here's how long we play this part here's how we end and uh i had created all this sheet music uh, i have their software for doing it and i've been using it for 20 years so it's not too hard um, but I had had my Toronto buddies come over with, and sit down with me and play through all the sheet music so that it was all proofread because there's always like, oh, you forgot the repeat symbol on this sheet music. So that bass player would have wound up in a different part of the song. Mm. We'd already done that, made all the corrections, and I am grateful to them for that because it meant that the first two 
tries at playing the song in New Orleans weren't just fixing the sheet music like might have might have happened. And so we wound up the uh, we uh, the rhythm section. We got everything uh, we got everything done in one day. We were there oh, from wow. about ten ten until I think we were packing up by six o'clock. It's beautiful. Yeah, it's uh, incredibly productive. That's <laughs> yeah. a, a, a incredibly productive day. And then I was back the next day fixing the odd thing and and we started mixing and, um, but uh, they're just absolutely lovely people. And, and if you're gonna, I think it's not a lot of people get to that level of their profession without being easy to get along with, supportive, uh, and just you know doing a great job. So right. And I'm curious of the counterbalance here between uh, the planning and the improvisation, if we could kind of dig into that just a little bit more. What do you look for in, in terms of that? Is it a feeling? Is it, is it something that, that you feel will elevate the song? Or, or what kind of emotional things are you looking for when somebody's bringing you things to try out in the recording? Oh, um, for this style of album, the songs are pretty arranged. Um, you, you don't want to leave too much to chance outside of this, uh, of the solos w with a different, uh, with a different album, uh, a different album might be very different and a different, uh, a, a different group, a different band leader might operate very differently. Um, I, you know, I know there's guys that go in and like, Hey, let's try this tune and see what happens. Uh, Keith Jarrett, the great piano player, has a trio, his standards trio with Jack DeJohnette and uh, Gary Peacock, I believe. Yeah, that's right. Um, they don't have a set list when they play live. They wow. Keith just starts playing a tune. Wow. And so I, most tunes start with just the piano. And maybe there's somewhere he's like, hey, you start the next one. And Gary starts the, the, the tune with bass. Um, live... Uh, I'm much more inclined to do that live mm. um, with, uh, and that's with standards and the guys just all know them and they have a huge vocabulary of songs at their fingertips, literally. <laughs> and uh, with this, it was very much here's, uh, we're going to play, you know, the, here's the intro and we're going to do this and we're going to do that. And then we're going to solo and here's who's going to solo. So it, even like that's mm. not, uh, and, and maybe I'm showing how the sausage is made here a bit, but it doesn't sound <laughs> that magical. But uh, when the solo happens, it's it's all yours. You've got this long, you've got this much time, this many bars, but it's all yours. Do what you want. There, I, I am not dictating to anybody um, what to do, and I'm in no position to because I really only play. I play the piano. I sing a bit. I play a bit of vibes, but not on this album. And uh, I, w I wouldn't know how to tell a bass player to approach playing the bass on anything. So um, I'm just, I, and when the folks are this good, I'm going to be delighted. <laughs> it might be, hey, on the second take, what if we throw this other approach? But it would be in vague terms because I don't have the terminology for their instruments. Mm. Um, but uh, I think... Uh, most of the stuff on the album, the solos you're hearing from these folks is whatever happened on the first go and maybe the second go, just because oh, we beautiful. did it twice for fun and they liked uh, wherever possible, I was letting them choose which version they thought was best. Mm. Yeah. And I thought that um, was really well done. Uh, one of the, the standouts for me was a song from MASH uh, because it had 
I mean, the whole album is kind of like this, and maybe as a as a an untrained listener, I'm I'm enjoying how free it feels, and so I think that's just a a compliment to the record because it was very well done in that sense. Even though it was arranged, there was a feeling of 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 freedom of levity there. But the just as an example, I mean, the the drum solo in Song from Ash, or it was it was kind of a solo there near the end, and I was like. These guys are just cutting loose. That's really the the energy that needed, you know, to happen in that's, that in that moment. That's the phrase I would use too. And that's uh, Herlin uh, was uh, had kind things to say when I was noodling, warming up to the, do the tune. But uh, you you probably if you you probably noticed that it starts with just me, and uh-huh. that's not how I went into the studio planning to do it. It was going to be like two, three, four, boom, we all come in. But I had this you know left hand groove that um that i, I liked uh, it was uh, is that too loud or is that okay no you're fine okay. yeah. uh, the the chord changes for the intro were almost like moon dance but i was doing oh there it is And uh, and he's you know tune, tuning stuff or setting up symbols or what he says. Why don't you do that for a while out front? Um, like why don't you start with that and then we'll come in. And I'm like, uh, and this is his jazz sensibility versus my arrangers. Like this, we got to do this and let's plan this. And I said, so you're going to come in after like four bars or eight bars? And he goes, oh, let's just see what happens. <laughs> and they wound up me doing that out front for like a full eight bars and they came in. So the intro wound up being twice as long as I had intended. Um, and, but and I was just. It didn't feel like that. It, it just felt like, man, you're just in that moment. And it was, it was a wonderful entrance to, to the it was, song. Uh, well, it, that was very much, that was very much his suggestion and I really appreciated it. And then I was just, I, what he was doing, the groove was, he just knocked it out of the park. And when we went back to mix, uh, I was just sitting there enjoying so much what he was doing and had the idea of, um, I want to feature him, but they're like, he didn't take a drum solo on it. I just wanted to hear the groove. And so I said to Chris, the, uh, the, the engineer and, you know, co-producer, um, which wasn't the plan, but he contributed so much to it. It was far more than just mixing he, and recording it. He was really creatively suggesting stuff. Um, I said, could we fade out the, like do, you know, do a fade on it like we were planning um, rather than just because there was no like sharp, clean ending on the tune. We just grooved and grooved and let it go, figured we fade it out later. And I said, what if we fade out uh, the bass and drums, uh, the bass and piano first? And then we can just let Herlin go for a while. Mm. And, and, you know, you want to hear, would, is that going to stand on its own? Is that going to sound good? And as soon as we muted the the bass and drums to have a, the bass and piano to have a listen, it was like, oh, yeah, I'd listen to this for like five minutes. So we fade out the two instruments and then he goes on for another, you know, 20 seconds before the drums start to fade out. And it's one of my favorite things on the album. And it's not something I had, I, I did not go in there planning it. And I plan a lot of stuff. Uh, and this is true of graphics as well. Uh, I'll have something like completely pictured out in my head and laid out. And sometimes it's hard to get me to change direction and talk me into doing something different. Uh, <laughs> cause I get these preconceived notions and I'm allergic to change. And, 
the uh, th- that one, yeah, the intro and the ending are completely different things than I went in there thinking they were going to be. So, oh, that's lovely. But, uh, yeah, and that's part. Of, I think that's part of it's in the water in New Orleans. It's just what, like, let's see what happens. The yeah. spontaneity. I think they cook that way too. <laughs> uh, it's it's just it's a different uh, it's a different mentality, and it's very cool. Yeah. So also, just a quick shout out. I'm really delighted that you included "Time in a Bottle," which is one of my favorite songs. Uh, of oh, all that's time. amazing! I, just, I I absolutely adore that song. I'm sitting there minding my business, listening to the album, and that one pops in, and and uh, it's it's a very emotional song, but it's it's a very. I think you you have this ability to to take something that might feel melancholy, and and the original is very much like that to me, and and there is there is levity coming out of your renditions of these. And and for one, I just want to applaud you for that because it, it just makes the song richer. It, it really brings the true nature of the song. But can you share a bit about, for instance, in Time in a Bottle, how you go about finding your own version of that? Um, I'm always wary of being uh, respectful to the original. Um, I never want anything to be, I don't like doing anything where it sounds like I'm poking fun at the tune. And I guess we could get to my version of every breath you take. Um, (laughs) but, uh, I, I, that particular tune, it was, I've been listening to that song for so long that it was easy because I just, it's, it's very heartfelt. One thing I didn't know until recently, um, was the timing of when he wrote it. Uh, and I probably should have known this, but uh, his son, A.J. Uh, Crochet, uh, I'm never sure if I'm pronouncing it right, Crochet. Um, Crochet? Crochet, uh, yeah. Crochet. Uh, but uh, Jim's son, A.J., was performs still, and he's a great performer. And he, I saw a video of him doing the tune and explaining that his dad, Jim, wrote the tune in response to finding out that his wife was pregnant with A.J., Mm. Um, and so that puts a different, uh, take on it. And even now I think I think about it differently than when I recorded it. Uh, I also didn't know that this was going to happen. Um, the song, that song was the one that debuted on the radio, uh, I think last, last Tuesday. And, uh, I was kind of excited. I mean, I've (laughs) I've had albums on the radio before, but this was a first with the singing and I, uh, we, we, it was Tuesday night and we listened to it and, you know, and then the next day I read that, that day, the Wednesday is the 50th anniversary of Jim's passing. Oh, wow. Um, 50. he had died. Yeah. He only had, he had, didn't have a lot of albums, had just a couple records, um, three at most. I think it might've been two. Yeah. And they were taking off from a, a small airport in Louisiana to go to from one college gig to go play another college in Texas. And the the pilot clipped some trees near the runway, and the plane went down. Every nobody survived, and uh, that uh, so that was a posthumous, uh, you know, top ten mm-hmm. hit. Yeah. Um, so uh, yeah, there's just there's there there's a lot to it. It's a it, it's a, a it's I have a lot of when I think about the story behind the tunes, a lot of mixed feelings, but for me, as far as the song goes, I just grew up with it being something that was in, uh, the record collection of, um, 
my parents' friends. Saturday morning was folk choir rehearsal at the church, and Sunday morning was folk choir service at the church. And then we would go to somebody, some member would always, you know, let's go back to my house this week Mm -hmm. and the coffee and day old donuts and, (laughs) and, uh, the uh and usually wound up with me you know going through their record collection curious what they were listening to and the um the jim crochet uh album was with that on it was in somebody's i don't i don't remember who's exactly Um, but that's how i discovered an awful lot of music all over the map from you know jethro tull to uh to acdc to you know acoustic stuff like jim crochet and you know paul williams song writing for the carpenters uh um, uh, that song, I, I'm also puzzled by, uh, what story is the precise one, but Jim talked like he was writing it for his wife because he was pregnant, but AJ, uh, w- when he was playing it live was talking about how his dad wrote it for him as opposed to because of him. And I'm like, oh, that, uh, that depending which way you take it, that's a very, that's a very different sentiment. It adds completely Your, different layers. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, uh. Um, I sort of took it as, and I say this awkwardly because we're not romantic, we're not public display of affection people, but on the album I said, you know, this, and this tune is, you know, this recording is from my wife, this particular tune. Mm. And then in brackets I added, you know, but you know, whatever, don't make it awkward. <laughs> like, cause we're so uncomfortable with that sort of you stuff. You gotta have the caveat. Uh- <laughs> yeah. 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 Like, don't be weird. It's just a song, you know, it's not romantic. Yeah. Um, and, and I think you but, also, um, you did a wonderful job there tying it all into a beautiful bow of personal meaning, I think. And I'm going to get as emotional as possible here. So I apologize. But uh, no, when, when you get to rainbow connection at the end, which as you've shared on, on the podcast before, that's a deeply, deeply personal song. And I'd like you to share that story again for people who are joining us for the first time, because it, it is so moving. And maybe if you could elaborate a little bit more on the new context, given that you sing it now, as opposed to the previous releases that you shared, which are instrumental. The, uh, yeah, I did it on 2013 songs. My daughter knows to close the album and it also closes this album. And I was hesitant. I'm like, Oh, that'd be weird. And I'm like, no, it kind of, maybe that's my thing. Maybe <laughs> I close every album in some version of this. Uh, I saw that I saw the Muppet movie in the theater in uh, 19, I want to say 1979, it came out. Uh, it should have been song of the year at the Oscars. Um, but it was beaten out by Melissa Manchester's song from the Sally field, the, the union movie solidarity, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's escaping oh. me, forgive me. Um, but, uh, it, in reality, it probably should have been the Rose this by Bette Midler, except that they, um, forgive me if I told you this already, they, they, uh, it has to be a completely, it has to, the song has to have not just been original to the movie. It has to have been written for the movie. Like they, um, they commissioned the song for the movie. And that songwriter, I want to say Amanda McBroom, mm-hmm. uh, they called her, the Oscar people, and said, so yeah, this movie, and she goes, this was written for the movie, eh? And, and she goes, well, I had already written it, but I hadn't <laughs> done anything with it. So oh, I said, yeah, no. you can use it for the movie. And they're like, oh no, that doesn't count. You have to have <laughs> written it deliberately for the movie. So in, in being, not knowing this, and or, and maybe she would have been painfully honest regardless, uh, it didn't qualify for an Oscar. Mm-hmm. And it and that song was huge. Uh, but Rainbow Connection was the big one for me. Uh, it opens the Muppet movie. A magnificent close-up pulling into Kermit. 
And the song is followed by an appearance by Dom DeLuise doing some of the funniest material I've ever seen on screen. <laughs> when he encourages, he shows up in a, in a rowboat and encourages Kermit to go to Hollywood and <laughs> setting up the whole movie. Um, and then I also saw it in French shortly thereafter, because mm. that's the summer I did a French exchange program where uh, an English speaking kid from Ontario goes to Montreal and stays with a French speaking family and vice versa. And we, that's, we went and saw that movie in the theater and mm. I don't, I assume Kermit sang the lyrics in French as well, although I don't actually recall. Um, and then I had the 45, uh, which went missing for years. And then my brother gave me, I'm not sure if it's the same one. He thinks it might be. It might have just got lost in our records for years. As a uh, birthday present a week ago, uh, he gave me, he found the 45. So it's uh, it's in a place of honor in our home now. Mm. And uh, the lyrics are just stunning. And Paul Williams, who wrote tunes for the Carpenters and uh, was a Phantom of the Fan Phantom of the Paradise, who was in the movie, um, he uh, wrote these gorgeous lyrics. Uh, Kenny Asher wrote the music. Kenny uh, played uh, some did some arranging for John Lennon at one point. Mm. Did a lot of movie music. He still plays at Birdland on Fridays in New York with the big band <laughs> uh, every week. You know, I don't think he has to, but he does. <laughs> And uh, I have pictures of a five-year-old Lenny, who's now 13, sitting on the piano bench with him at Birdland. Mm -hmm. I wasn't there for that trip, but that, I just love those photos to death. It's amazing. And so I wound up, uh, it was the first song I ever played for her, literally. We, uh, when we got home from the hospital with Lenny, she was a couple of days old, went right to the piano and had her on my lap and played Rainbow Connection. And... Uh, I don't know what I thought was going to happen. Like, you know, I, I usually say that, you know, I thought the skies were going to open and uh, heavenly lights were going to shine on us. And she'd look up at me and gaze at me, but she just sat there and drooled. Um, but it wound up being a, an absolute favorite of hers. And yeah. so I closed that instrumental record when she was two and a half with it. And since I've seen a lot of videos, I did a deep dives on Paul Williams talking about the song and Paul Williams uh, singing it sings it differently. And I used to think, oh, he's taking liberties with that. Like, mm. that's not how it goes. It's like, wait a minute, him and Kenny wrote the tune. It's possible, and I would love to ask him sometime, the way you sing it now and the way you phrase it, is that how you did it for Jim Henson? And then maybe Henson went, oh, well, Kermit would sing it much more simply. Mm -hmm. And so maybe it was jim henson taking some liberties with what paul williams and kenny asher wrote uh to simplify it for that character i don't know um, but i've incorporated some of since then some of how paul williams phrases things and then some things of my own as well and the arrangement is different than uh how i did it before which is pretty true to the original uh, i add another section at the end right where you think it's about to end where it would end and go off on another bit of a solo briefly, and then before it starts winding down. Um, and I also approach it differently now after hearing Williams discuss the lyric. And uh, why are there so many songs about rainbows and what's on the other side? Rainbows are visions, but only illusions, and rainbows have nothing to hide. So we've been told. And hearing him talk about how they wanted to paint themselves in the corner and go, wait a minute, it's not that simple. Mm. 
and that's not entirely accurate. I never, and now when I think about that every time I sing it, it's like the, the opening statement isn't the whole tune. It's like the opening statement. And then the, so the singer immediately says, the lyricist immediately says, so we've been told, but hang on a minute. <laughs> and we choose to believe it. Um, I know they're wrong. Mm. Wait and see. It's like, whoa, that's like, you know, yeah. it's, uh, and this is something I should have been doing all along, but being new to singing. But when I was an accompanist at colleges for musical theater, my friend uh, Louisa, who was also my first voice teacher, and said, get over here, let me give you a lesson. You're talking about learning to sing. You were talking about this when you were 40. Now you're turning 50. I'm not going to listen to you talking about this <laughs> when you're 60. Come over right now and have a lesson. And that's sort of how it started. Uh, Louisa was the voice teacher at the musical theater at the music theater program at the college, and she would have them do a lyric analysis, like write out the lyrics double spaced, and then write in the spaces between them what you think that line is about. Mm. And that figures heavily into music theater because you're supposed to still be acting while you're singing, and you would do that for dialogue. So why wouldn't you do it for lyrics? Mm -hmm. And now I very much do that with, with lyrics. Um, and I've had, uh, I've had uh, people comment on uh, a friend named Harvey who knows more about jazz standards than all, he's forgotten more than I'll ever know. And he commented on it after a particular set I was doing and said, and said you, you're really like acting the lyrics. And I'd even realize I was doing it, but I guess my facial expression was telegraphing something about one of the lines and it connected with him, which really meant a lot to me, especially knowing as much as he knows <laughs> about this stuff. Um, so singing, finally sing, uh, getting to sing Rainbow Connection uh, on a recording, well, was, uh, that was, uh, again, with the, for this particular album, that's probably one of the... Um, that's the biggest box I get to check. Oh, I think. beautiful. It was my absolute favorite pop song of all time. I get to close a record where I can actually sing these amazing lyrics. Oh, yeah. And it's a worthy conclusion to the album. I think across the board, uh, you've done such a wonderful job of re not reinventing, but but just doing a couple of refreshers in, in a lot of these tracks. And it reminds us of how beautiful they were to begin with and, and shining a new light on them which I thought was such a great accomplishment with the vocals included. But I have one more. I have one more to be mindful of your time and to uh, oh, no, so gain, gain some insight. I think maybe what we should do is if you and I like kind of sit down and do a fundraiser together of some kind, like then we could go telethon style because you have so many wonderful stories. You have so much to share that it, it's such a blast to just listen um, and take it all in. But, this one here, uh, not to tie it back to the AI thing or anything, but mostly I'm curious of the human element and its place in our society right now, in particular jazz, who, you know, a, a genre or maybe a, a musical approach that some might consider not at the forefront of, of pop culture. Why do we need it? What is, what is the, the, the sort of, um, I keep saying joy, but, but perhaps the enriching quality of jazz that, that is important to share, especially when talking about this new album, Lookout, and, and across the board about the genre. What is it giving us right now, and, and how can it benefit us? Man, I've got, uh, uh, I've got such strong feelings about some of what you asked. That I, um, as far as what it brings... 
there's so many different approaches to jazz and so many different styles that I can't answer for probably 90% of people who play it. Being me, I'm going to, this will be a little bit tangential, but I think in performing in general, I've uh, come to realize something that I didn't when I was younger. And that is that we're not just performing. Uh, we're not performing necessarily to educate anybody uh, to, to get the, maybe they might want to dance with something I used to be uptight about. Like I thought it was people were making fun of it if they walked by and started dancing a little bit to the music. Mm -hmm. And now that I sort of fancy myself, not just like an instrumentalist or a jazz musician, but an entertainer. Uh, and I've shocked at how much I'm enjoying that. Um, I, I think that what are the most important thing that we do is we're making memories for folks. And now I look at an audience at a, at a gig and that's how I approach it. And if I, you know, they came, they went to the trouble to maybe find a babysitter, to find parking, to plunk down some money for drinks, maybe pay for a ticket um, and invest their time in this. And I think my job is for them to leave with a good memory of that, of that day, of that evening. Um, I've looked in an audience at a gig that wasn't mine, this uh, Christmas fundraiser we do uh, every year um, in outside of Toronto for uh, kids' ability, uh, um, a, a really great cause. That actually, they do speech therapy as well, so it's a little bit personal for me. Um, and saw some of the youngest folks and some of the oldest folks I've ever seen at an audience, uh, at, in the audience at a show. And for the kids, it might be the first time they've ever seen live music. That's a heck of a memory. I remember my experiences with that very clearly. And for the old folk, I mean, we're talking folks that are old enough that I wonder, might this be the last time that their family takes them out to see entertainment? And that's mm -hmm. a large part of the audience for this, what we're doing for uh, these shows. That's a huge memory. And man, it makes you want to do a good job and deliver something that's worthy of being in that memory. Um, more specific to jazz, uh, I, I think it, I find it such fun and that's not true. I, I don't know if that's, I I'm positive. That's not universal because there's so many different approaches to it. Um, but I can only take myself so seriously. <laughs> uh, it's like I said to Ricky, the fellow who wrote the, the liner notes, um, and I was honored to have him do it. I mean, this guy won the Grammy award for writing liner notes in 2022. Mm. And I was shocked that he's, he was so pleased to, to do these, but I said, I need, if I'm going to have liner notes and I wasn't sure I was going to, you know, in the booklet, uh, if I'm going to have them, I need somebody with a sense of humor because I do this. I do the thing from Spider-Man for God's sake. Like, it's <laughs> like, this is not. This is not, no one's going to listen to this with a serious face scratching their beard and pondering the, well, the meaning of art. It's, it's, I'm having fun. Um, and it, uh, it's, uh, yeah, there's, I guess there's, I need there to be a sense of fun and hopefully some joy, um, because of what I, because of what I get out of it. And it's, bizarre to me sometimes how much I value getting a laugh between songs <laughs> at a performance that I really 
wonder, am I prioritizing the right <laughs> things? Because it's so gratifying to me. Um, the part of, if you notice, so there's a lot of relatively contemporary music on the album. And I've always been puzzled. Well, I know, I think I know the reason, but I've always wished that the repertoire for jazz had moved chronologically the way, well, not the way anything, because it didn't really happen. Let me explain. The, when jazz started happening, they were improvising on popular music of the day. So folks were hearing people play that hit, like a song from, oh, that new Broadway show, that big hit, Blue Skies. Mm -hmm. um, these guys are improvising on Blue Skies. I know that song, but it's 2023, and I still do Blue Skies. Uh, I mean, I love the tune, but there's other, there's, you know, we're not drawing on the songs of today, and I don't know mm. that non-jazz audiences connect with it the same way. Herbie Hancock did an album in the 90s called The New Standard, some mm. wordplay there for jazz standards. And he did a Prince tune, he did a, a Don Henley tune, did a Beatles tune. Uh, and I thought, oh, this is what's, maybe he's going to get this kick started that we're going to start playing. You know, and it didn't really happen. It wasn't one of his more successful albums. Mm. Uh, I think part of the reason is that the songs when jazz started tended to be 32 bar a a b a it's like with poetry this the structure is you know 32 bars a a b a um and if you play it if i say let's play blue skies uh the only question is really what key and then you count it off and there's the tempo because it's going to be this a a b a song structure but if you say hey let's do um I'm, I'm trying to, th uh, what's a, Norig Jones, Don't Know Why, is something that jazz musicians sometimes play. Not as much as the other songs, but you can say, hey, let's do Don't Know Why by Norig Jones. There still has to be some discussion as to what are you going to improvise on because there's a verse, chorus, verse, chorus, and I think the second verse or the second chorus is a little bit longer than the first one. So there's an inconsistency. And then there's a bridge. So are we going to solo on just the verse? Are we going to do the verse chorus? Are you going to do the entire song? It's not as simple as calling a tune um, like Blue Skies. So I think once that pop song structure started to happen, with, especially with you know rock, when rock music stopped just being a 12-bar blues, I'm paraphrasing a lot of this history, but, uh, and the song structure got more complex. It wasn't as simple as a jazz musician saying, Hey, let's do this tune. Everyone knows basically what to do. And that's when I think the jazz canon, the, the, uh, the repertoire of what is a jazz standard sort of got frozen at that point. So it was the music from the beginning of jazz until I roughly 1960, maybe, um, that's when it stopped stuff stopped being as simple as hey let's play that song we heard the other day on the radio that great new tune let's play it but like as a jazz tune uh and so i love finding songs that i can interpret through this lens uh, like you can call me out by paul simon but i'm always looking for something i can do with it other than just play it with a swing beat and in that case i thought what's uh you know let's take the I think I was playing the horn shots. I always loved hearing my brother play this when he would play uh, acoustic guitar and sing. Well, what happens if we played over the relative minor? All of a sudden it's... 
and then you change the feel. And that's basically my version. Um, and Beautiful. it's funny to watch the audience go, oh, I know this. Why do I know this? And until <laughs> I get to the chorus there, and then it, there's some revelation. Some people go, oh, when they hear, you can be my body. Uh, I'm, I'm not singing the right key. Um, but, but when they, you, can, um, you, uh, you can be my bodyguard, I can be your long lost pal. Some people go, oh, <laughs> and there's still other people because it's such a different tone and vibe and feel that they don't, the oh of revelation doesn't happen until I actually say, you can call me Al. Mm. Um, so it's, it's fun that way, but it's, it's, uh, other tunes like, uh, time in a bottle you mentioned aren't as different. Um, but I, I like reharmonizing them a bit. So the, with the tune is, um, the chorus is, um, You can, uh, there a lot of jazz progressions, you know, common uh, chord progressions in jazz figure into this. This part is, I think, in his version, uh, that descending line. But it's also, uh, it immediately makes me think of mm. my funny Valentine, ah. sweet Dada. Because yeah. there's only so many chord progressions. Sure. And then when it goes major for the chorus, there never seems to be enough time. Well, it's... Is also, and I quote it pretty much verbatim after the last chorus. Ah, yeah. Billy He's, Joel has yeah, to I call them make an appearance. Piano Man chords. Or uh, can you hear the people sing da 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 uh, Les Mis? <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but I, I, I don't think I play that in there, but I throw in a little bit of Piano Man. <laughs> um, it's uh, And then finding, you know, for improvising, I play piano in such a way if I'm playing jazz that more chords means there's more things I can do. Mm. So finding extra chords to stick between the chords that are, in the original version is, mm -hmm. is a lot of fun for me. Oh, so beautiful. Um, and then sometimes if it's just a, a blues, it's just a blues. So the peep, uh, the song big wide world, uh, is a, is a PBS kids theme song that my, my daughter absolutely loved. <laughs> and my wife actually worked with the creator when she was in animation production. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's a, it's a 12 bar blues. It's not even a jazzified 12 bar blues. It's an old school 12 bar blues, the way you would play it, you know, like, you know, 80 years ago on acoustic guitar. Um, so I messed with the feel a bit, but it's still, I you know, it's, uh, you're not going to, I wasn't going to mess with the chord changes too much on that one. <laughs> so that one's pretty traditional. Oh, beautiful. Well, Jim, uh, this has been an absolute pleasure. I know we, uh, we keep running out of time on these because you have uh, such phenomenal stories, but I hope you stick around here for a minute because I want to talk to you for a sec sure. after we wrap up. But um, I want to thank you so much for bringing Lookout, your new album out into the world. It is such a pleasure to listen to you take on these these uh, songs and and giving them your own spin make something that is truly memorable and uh, very emotional experience listening to them I really enjoyed it um, and also oh, that's for, nice to hear yeah yeah and and also for for these these uh, remarkable insights I I just have such a blast uh, listening to you 
put together a, a lot of this musical perspective that you've acquired over the years and refine the way that you want to go about making your art. And yes, you're an entertainer, but you're also a damn good artist, and it's such a pleasure to have you here and to, to chat with you. Oh, thanks, man. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I hope, you know, hey, round three, maybe down the <laughs> around the corner. <laughs> I'll get some new anecdotes, too. That's <laughs> These are gold. Oh, do These you want gold. the? Uh, you want some? You want some accent music again? Yeah, yeah. Are, are we doing the outro? Let's go. 